Please be seated. Good evening to you. Jeremiah chapter 23 this evening. Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. This is where we find ourselves. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. You just flag them down and they'll put one in your hand and it'll be marked to our passage tonight. So you can just jump in and follow us along. You'll be fairly lost on Sunday night without a Bible, I think and uh, certainly won't be able to absorb as fully as God wants you to, His Word. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, this evening. When we come to Jeremiah chapter 23, it is um, one of the most uh, scathing uh, uh, rebukes in all of the Bible uh, by God toward Uh, false uh, prophets and false priests and uh, false spiritual leaders within uh, among God's people. I think the only thing that rivals it and indeed uh, exceeds it is when we go into the New Testament in Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus uh, denounces, uh, woe unto you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, and and just uh, openly uh, lets them have it. It is a uh, a privilege uh, to be called uh, as a leader in the body of Christ. But one of the things that keeps uh, leaders uh, within among God's people and being an influence for righteousness and influence for God uh, uh, in the midst of what identifies itself as Christian is that keeps us sane and keeps us safe and away from pride and all of these other uh, things that endeavor to trap leaders is uh, the fact that um, the tremendous responsibility that is associated with this. Now, uh, many of you know that recently on Sunday mornings we've been in Acts chapter 20 talking about Paul's address to the Ephesian elders there in Miletus. And so we're kind of getting a leadership, uh, you know, concentration here in the last uh, six weeks or so as a body just on the basis of where we are uh, within the Scriptures. But it's important to realize that just because a person is a leader, say, in the body of Christ uh, or uh, declares himself to be a leader, it's one thing to be called and to, to, do, uh, uh, to be called to do that. It's another thing to be faithful to it. And you think about the damage that is done uh, by leaders that are not taking their responsibility properly, as we'll see is in this chapter, uh, they're, because their influence is so great, they can do a disproportionate amount of damage. Uh, when they don't have their heads screwed on straight, they're not close to God, and they're not obeying His Word. And so uh, one of the, my favorite uh, descriptions of Jesus in all of the Bible is found in the book of Revelation where he is self-described in one of his letters to the uh, seven churches there. He describes himself as the singular, true, and faithful uh, witness. If you have ever, ever been disappointed in a leader in the, in the body of Christ or disappointed by a decision or their conduct or what, uh, their disobedience or whatever it might be, that's unfortunate. It's something that God never intends to happen. But we must always remember that everyone has feet of clay. Uh, what's the old saying? The best of men are men at best. And the same thing is true 
of women as well. And we always have to be careful uh, to keep our uh, vision, our focus elevated up to the Lord. He is the singular faithful and true witness of, uh, of the Father, what God is like, and uh, how God wants us to live. And so here in chapter 23, a lot of times it's very exciting, maybe preferable in life, uh, to learn uh, what we need to learn and want to learn by the example, uh, by a good example. Um, but I, I'm afraid that most of what I've learned in life is probably and learned most deeply is by either a failure in my own life that I've learned from or watching other people do things that uh, didn't work out so well or were poor examples, and then uh, that lesson was an important one. And here we get a lesson where God is really going to expose Uh, these religious leaders who were claiming to represent him and were so far away from him that you can't even put it into words. And uh, so here we get it from kind of the negative side. Uh, Don't do this and and, uh, be aware of this kind of thing when you see it because it's wrong. So Jeremiah begins speaking for the Lord, chapter 23, woe. And that word woe means woe. And it means the idea of uh, judgment is coming. Uh, It has the idea of, uh, and when that judgment comes, nobody is going to want to be in your shoes. Woe to the shepherds, and specifically in these first uh, four verses here, he is speaking to the kings of Israel. He gets to the priests and the prophets a little bit later. But under the theocracy that was uh, Israel in the southern kingdom of Judah, the kings had a responsibility, they had a mandate uh, from God to represent him. So a king wasn't a purely secular position like a president of the United States might be uh, for us or other kind of elected officials. He had a responsibility as the king to govern. He wasn't necessarily a prophet, though king, uh, king, uh, he, he wasn't necessarily didn't have that mantle on him. But the kings, when they started their rule reigning over Israel, they were to begin it by reading the entire law of God. That was to be the initial thing they did in their uh, reign so that they would then judge on the basis of God's word. So this is who he's denouncing here. He gets to the spiritual leaders, uh, the purely spiritual leaders, a little bit later. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep. Now, that's, a, that's an awful thing. You, you have here the uh, imagery, the, the language that is used of a shepherd. I mean, if you handed a flock over to a shepherd, and rather than tending them and feeding them, uh, he spent all of his time scattering and destroying them, you, it'd make you pretty upset. And so here is God talking about these kings that are over his people and they're not nurturing them, they're not feeding them, they're not taking care of them, they're not uh, ruling righteously, they're destroying and scattering the sheep, God says, of my pasture, says uh, the Lord. Now he's going to uh, repeat this word my three times in the next couple of verses And one of the things that happens in any leader within even the body of Christ where there is this scattering 
there is this destroying, there is this kind of a treatment of the body of Christ, it's an indication that the leader has lost the consciousness that these people belong to God. They do not belong to you. They do not belong to me. Every leader in the body of Christ is a man or a woman under authority. Uh, The people never belong to us, not a single person. Our own lives don't even belong to us. They belong to God. And once you start to play fast and loose in the way that they did, it's an indication that uh, somehow they feel like this is their gig or their thing or these are their sheep or this is their nation and they can do whatever they want. Uh, and they've forgotten that these are the sheep, God said, of my pasture. They belong to me. Peter brings the same thing out in chapter 5 of his first epistle where he uh, reminds the leaders within the body of Christ uh, that the sheep belong to the Lord. And so he said, Therefore, thus says the Lord, uh, Lord God of Israel, against the shepherds uh, who uh, uh, feed my flock, you have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend uh, to you for evil, for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. And so the Lord says, I've been watching all of this, important for a leader, whether in a pulpit like I'm in here this evening, or whether a leader is talking privately or in a counseling session. But wherever a leader is operating under the mantle of God's calling as a leader in the body of Christ, Uh, to uh, realize that the Lord is present in all of that. He's watching. He's listening. Uh, There's the old saying uh, that that Bible teachers or whoever's behind a pulpit to remember that as they uh, teach and as they preach that uh, uh, supremely there is an audience of one in the room. Yes, we're ministering to God's people, but to never forget that God is in the room. He's listening. He's watching. He's assessing because the flock belongs to him. And again, they had lost sight of this. And then God said, behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. In other words, I'm going to repay you uh, for uh, how poorly uh, you have mismanaged my people and mistreated them. Now, he speaks in uh, verse 3 about a remnant. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their folds, and they shall uh, be fruitful and increase. I will set up at that time shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, uh, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. So the Lord promised as he speaks about, he's going to deal with these leaders, but he speaks about the flock that they've mishandled, and the flock is responsible in their own way for having followed them, uh, but uh, he speaks of the day that one day they're going to be brought back into the land again uh, after their captivity, that God wasn't going to uh, give up on them. It is important to remember that there's always a remnant among God's people. No matter how apostate uh, things get or how goofy things get in terms of uh, what people are doing, what the body of Christ is emphasizing or de-emphasizing, there's always a godly remnant that's kind of caught in the middle of that apostasy. They're living faithfully for God. 
God said, I'm going to look out for them. I will bring them back uh, into Judah after the captivity. They'll rebuild the temple and will restore the national life and move things forward. Remember, uh, these, the, the, the greatest significance of these kings and these religious leaders uh, kind of blowing their calling the way that they are is not that the children of Judah are going to go into captivity, as horrible as that is. But what they're playing fast and loose with is the future of the Jewish people. And God had promised that he was going to bring the Messiah into the world through the bloodline of the Jews. And they're acting like they have no significant place in history. This is all a big game. We can do what we want or not do. We can obey God or disobey God. And they're about to blow the whole thing up before the Messiah, Jesus, ever comes into human history. And so God is uh, uh, going to keep a remnant in the midst of it, bring them back and continue with his uh, plan of salvation. And we're thankful uh, for that. He promises that when he does that, he'll set up shepherds uh, over them at that time, different from the shepherds that they had at this time that will feed uh, them and will protect them. And one of the greatest uh, things that... Uh, one of the greatest ways that a leader in the body of Christ today can, uh, where you can look at them and you can come to a conclusion, and we're free to. We're not free to judge one another uh, in terms of our motives or what's in our heart, this kind of thing. But you're free to, in a positive way, look at that person and discern their love for the Lord on the basis of the emphasis that they give to feeding the flock of God, feeding God's people uh, the Word of God, whether in a public setting like this or in a counseling session or whatever it might be. You remember when uh, following Jesus' resurrection, he meets with uh, Peter and the other disciples. Peter had kind of quit the whole apostleship thing. And, and these are the latter, last, uh, next to last chapter of John, John chapter 20. And he goes, I'm going back fishing. He fishes and, and, uh, and, and then the Lord gives him this incredible catch of fish, 164 fish, if I'm not mistaken, and, the, and, and so forth. They come to the shore and, and the Lord restores Peter back into his public ministry, recommissions him as an apostle. And you remember the questions that he posed to Peter. Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, uh, Lord, you know all things. You know that uh, I love you. Peter, do you? Uh, and Jesus said, then feed my sheep. And he said it again. Peter, do you love me? Uh, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my lambs. Third time, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And, P and then Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep and the importance of the word of God. One of the greatest ways that a leader within the body of Christ has to demonstrate or to express personally uh, his or her love toward God is by feeding God's people uh, the Word of God. And, uh, and, and here is the promise that God would supply uh, people, uh, shepherds, who would do that. We talked about it a little bit on a recent Sunday morning, but related to a shepherd looking out for sheep. A shepherd had a lot of responsibilities. Uh, as Jesus spoke to Peter, he mentioned feed the sheep twice and tend them once. It's not just a feeding, but a tending as well. Uh, but there is an emphasis to be upon the teaching 
of the Word of God, because there's always pressure to move uh, away from that uh, part of the uh, Christian ministry. And, and so uh, here is this... Um, You can be a shepherd and you can pull all of the bugs out of their fur that you want. You can take all of the, uh, apply all of the oil to their eyes and so forth and all. But if you do not feed sheep, uh, they will die. And it won't matter how many of these other things that you do, they must be fed. Just like us, we have to be fed and uh, the Word of God, or we're going to die spiritually. And so the Lord makes this promise uh, related to a remnant of, of real shepherds that He would one day put over uh, the flock. And then while He's talking about shepherds that would feed properly and tend properly, uh, Jeremiah, by the Spirit of God, heads into uh, a very powerful prophecy in the Old Testament concerning the coming Messiah, concerning Jesus. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. So he says several things about this Messiah who is to come. And once they're brought back into the land, number one, I will raise to David. He will be born of the lineage of David. This is emphasizing the humanity uh, of the coming Messiah. He said he will be a branch of righteousness. In other words, he will come up out of David's lineage, a branch coming up out of roots, so to speak. Remember, when, the, when Judah goes into captivity, the northern kingdom of, of Assyria has already gone into captivity, or the northern kingdom of Israel has gone into captivity to the Assyrians, so they've been taken out of the land. Uh, the Davidic dynasty has essentially come to an end. And how in the world are we going to have this great king that the Scriptures spoke about uh, coming, ruling, reigning as the Messiah, as the Scriptures prophesied uh, that he would from the lineage of David be a king of David's lineage now that uh, the kings have all been uh, wiped out and ta- or taken into captivity. And the Lord declares that uh, none of that is in jeopardy. I will raise a branch of righteousness. And uh, in other words, this, uh, this, uh, uh, this uh, king will come on the scene, this Messiah. His reign will be marked not by the corruption of these, uh, for the most part of these kings of Judah, but will be marked by righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness uh, in the earth. And so when this Messiah comes, we know him to be Jesus. He's going to exercise judgment and righteous on the earth. Everything's going to prosper under his oversight. He's always going to do what is exactly right in terms of uh, how he uh, rules. As a result of that, we're told that in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Uh, so ultimately, it's going to be in the reign of this, this king, this Messiah, uh, that uh, that uh, there, there will be safety for Judah and for Israel. We know that this speaks of Jesus' kingdom age reign, his thousand-year reign of Christ, which follows uh, his, his second coming. So in his first coming, he, he came as a suffering Savior. Uh, that's how he came. In his second coming, he's going to come as a conquering king, and he will fulfill uh, this passage at, at that time because
because that's where he, uh, you know, comes in the fullness of that identity, that description in the Old Testament. And uh, now this is his name by which he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. And that phrase, the Lord our our righteousness, it is a name of God. It's one of the names for Jesus. And it means Jehovah uh, Tzidkenu. It means the Lord uh, our righteousness. And so again, his reign is going to be marked by uh, perfect rightness. He's going to unite both the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah in his reign, the world as well. And the title, the Lord our righteousness, this speaks of his deity. The Messiah will be uh, 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 fully man and fully God all at the same time as Jesus is. The Son of God and uh, and, uh, God the Son uh, as he's described uh, in the Scriptures. Think about that thousand-year reign when it's coming. I mean, there'll be no crime, uh, no investment. Think about where Chicago will turn uh, just uh, in the in the light of that. No drugs. There'll be no uh, opioid epidemics or any of these kind of things. There'll be no wars. We won't have to worry about uh, Iran or North Korea or nobody else will have to worry about anyone else. It will be perfect peace. Imagine taking the resources that are used on all of these other things and and having them, uh, with, there's no concern for them, no need for militaries, no need for law enforcement. He rules and reigns with a rod of iron. It's just the way that it's going to be. And as all of these things are redirected, people will live longer lives than they do now at that time as well. And, and uh, so it's going to be a tremendous uh, period of time, but it will be under his uh, oversight. It's going to be tremendous when, uh, when it does occur. And the Bible says for us as Christians now that we will we'll be kept busy during that period of time because we will rule and reign with him. I don't want to get into a, a, a discussion completely of the millennium today, uh, the millennial reign. I know you don't want me to either at this point. I'm running myself into that. I'm not blaming you in any way. Um, so, uh, but it will be uh, it will be wonderful. This prophecy in the middle of just absolute despair, strength of this denunciation. Where is the hope? Everything's so bad, you know. And here we're talking about the kings. We're talking about spiritually. The nation is just going down the tubes. And what happens? God steps in and puts everybody's eyes uh, back on Jesus, so to speak. And uh, uh, the only place that there's hope uh, in the world. And therefore. Uh, Behold, uh, Jeremiah declares, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they will no longer say as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but they'll replace that phrase with uh, as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country, that is the Babylonian captivity, and from all of the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Now you read that and you think it's kind of hard to believe. One of the greatest events in the Old Testament was the exodus of the Jewish people out of Egypt. And one of the most significant events in their history. And, and, uh, and they remember it with the Passover on an annual basis. And so here is Jeremiah. The Lord is speaking through him, talking about uh, the deliverance ultimately of the Lord, bringing the children of Israel out of Babylon, 
will uh, create a greater celebration in their heart than even his deliverance of them out of Egypt. When you think there's a a way to look at this that that certainly uh, makes sense. When they were in bondage to the Egyptians, in that uh, bondage, they were innocent in that bondage. They had gone, uh, God had taken them into Egypt. Uh, They numbered something like 72 people when they went into uh, Egypt. They went under, under favorable circumstances. And God has given them the promised land of Israel. But they're really just a glorified tribe. They're even a small tribe uh, as it, 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 when you look at things for the ancient world. And yet in order to inhabit that land, they need to go from being a tribe to becoming a nation. And by the time God brings them out of Egypt at that time, they number somewhere between two and three million people now, the exodus out. But they were, Egypt represented an incubator for them, for God's plan. They weren't there because of their own disobedience. And ultimately, God delivered them from that. So it was a deliverance that was wonderful. But here they go in the Babylonian captivity. They go into uh, captivity because of their own sin. For so for the 70 years that they're sitting in that Babylonian captivity, they've got to be looking at it and saying, man, I mean, there, we could have, you know, given some kind of a case for God delivering us up out of Egypt, but we've completely blown this. We are in here because of our own sin and idolatry and rebellion against God. God has no reason at all to not just wash his hands of us, be done with us, and, and never deliver us out of that. So when he did, it was an expression, an even greater expression of his grace than the deliverance out of, out of Egypt. And the Lord was putting that hope within them that this uh, was going uh, to occur. Now, in uh, verse 9, as we come into this uh, part of, uh, of the chapter, uh, Isaiah and the Lord, their focus goes now uh, completely upon the Jewish religious leaders, uh, the priests and the prophets, those who claim to represent God, to interpret His Word, to speak for Him. They were uh, called by God, supported by God, in order to be spiritual overseers of the health of the spiritual condition of the nation. The king was not so much concerned about that, except in laws and in judgment and in the courts and so forth. Uh, the priests and the prophets had a, a greater responsibility, and, uh, and they failed at it miserably, and the Lord begins to denounce them. Jeremiah begins in verse 9 by saying, My heart within me is broken. Why is it broken? Because of the prophets... All my bones shake. Now that's, he's having a physical reaction to something. Uh, Something uh, 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 terrifies him inside. Something is producing this within, in him. He said, I'm like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy uh, words. So uh, he, uh, describes himself as uh, being staggered. He can't get his bearings. It's like 
He's not inebriated, but something that he's processing in his life at this moment in time uh, has him where he just can't, like a drunk person, can't quite grab a hold of the reality that's going around him to get their bearings. He can't get his bearings in the middle of the spiritual environment that these priests and these prophets have uh, produced there uh, within Judah. And he staggered, really, as he kind of observed uh, how they were living and what they were teaching, the, the religious leaders, in the light of God's commandments. He looks at this huge gap between what God's Word said and then what they were teaching, what they were teaching people to live, and the lives that they were living as well. And Jeremiah, his heart is so big toward God, has such a fear of the Lord in a healthy way, and... Uh, and a love for God's Word uh, that he's just kind of drunk with sorrow, mental anguish. The heart, the word that's used for heart here is it, it's, it, den- it denotes a very profoundly disturbed mental rather than an emotional state. His mind, he cannot get his mind around how these leaders could violate their vocation and their calling in this way. How can you call yourself a prophet? How can you call yourself a priest and say what you're saying and do what you're doing? And and it, it disturbs him down to his very core. He's kind of mentally shattered uh, under it. He's not unstable, but he's he's trying to get, a, a, you know, get a grasp of it in his mind. He just could not get his head around how leaders could do this uh, kind of uh, thing. And then he moves on to speak about uh, what these false prophets and leaders had done, the, the very, very active part that they had played in uh, turning, uh, filling the uh, land of Judah with all of these sinful practices and ultimately leading them uh, into captivity. For the land is full of adulterers. And this was, this was under these religious leaders, and it wasn't condemned by them. The land was just full. Again, we're not talking about Gentiles. We're not talking about pagans here. We're talking about the children of Israel. And, I mean, they've gone south more than the Gentile world had in many regards. And here they are, the entire land is filled with adultery. By the way, I think it's good for us to remember, even as Christians, that adultery is wrong. It is so widespread within our culture. Nobody blinks at it anymore. Somebody's here, there, and there they go. I thought they were still married. And the whole thing going on. And for us to stop and to realize when it doesn't matter how we look at a nation or we look at a relationship, what matters is how does God look at it? And here is God's people. It'd be like a whole church where, uh, or the body of Christ. If it was just adultery was the norm within it. And No pastor spoke out against it. No prophet spoke out against it. This is the kind of thing that has Jeremiah uh, reeling. The land is full of adulterers, 
For because of a curse the land mourns, the pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Uh, In other words, they're offering all of these sacrifices to Baal. Baal Baal was supposed to be the god of nature, uh, the god of prosperity, and they're doing all of these offerings, all of this idolatry, so they'll get bigger crops and all of this kind of thing. And God is working, of course, against all of it. And what they did have is shriveling up. He's not giving them rain. They're not having these abundant harvests because God's not going to let them be successful in sin. It's one of the wonderful things about becoming a Christian is that when we become a Christian, uh, it, we, uh, we, the, the Lord will, from that point on, it's true of everyone, but especially true of us, He will never again let us be successful in sin. And uh, he wasn't going to let them uh, either. Their, their course of life is evil. The entire nation, as a general rule, was just gravitating toward evil. Uh, you look at our nation, look at the Western world. This is exactly uh, where we are. We see these little uh, glimpses of, well, this was nice, and that person did a nice thing, and so forth. And then, but then you look out in mass, at mass entertainment, look at the movies, look at the TV shows, look at the video games. These things are all selling in the billions of dollars worth. This is what people are secretly tapped into. Look at what gets the highest traffic upon uh, the internet and so forth. Their course of life is evil and their might is not right. They were not using their influence as religious leaders among God's people to influence for righteousness. Uh, They were using their influence to comfort people uh, within uh, their their sin. For both the prophet and the priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. So it's interesting, this word profane, where it's used elsewhere in the Scriptures, we think of profane as something that is like, uh, that person's really profane. They're an extraordinarily Uh, awful person. It's not how it's usually used in the Bible. What the word profane means is it means common. And here you've got the temple or you've got the tabernacle. And the moment that you walked out of that tabernacle or temple and you walked on the grounds that were outside of it, that ground was profane. That was common. This is holy and this is profane. And everybody knew. So profane wasn't somebody that was swearing their head off as a sailor or something like that. To be profane was to simply be like everyone else in the world. To live like it, to act like it, and to think like it. And it has no place uh, in the uh, in the lives of those that are called to be leaders among God's people. The prophet and the priest are profane. They cannot discern between what is holy and what is unholy. And he speaks there, and yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. They brought all of the things, the common things of the world, and they brought all of it into the temple, into the worship of the Lord. So rather than God's people being a salt and light in the world, being distinctive in a way that looks like Christ, not like churchianity, but being distinctive in that way, they decided uh, the way that we're going to have an impact in the world is to bring the profaneness, the commonness, the sin, the carnality of the world, and we will bring it into the worship of God. That's what we're going to uh, do and how we're going to handle that. And there's tremendous pressure uh, today, certainly in the last 20 years of my 
being a pastor, and the pressure is always on to become more and more like the world in order to uh, reach the world. It is a terrible mistake, and uh, the idea, and the appealing to carnality and and so forth, where more and more the world comes in uh, to the church, even into the worship uh, of the Lord. And this was a, a pattern that uh, was going on, uh, e- you know, even back in the time uh, of of Jeremiah. The temple was being made as pagan as the culture and as sin-filled as uh, as the culture. And the Lord said, therefore, as a result of this, and all of that happens because of weak leadership. All of that happens because of, of poor leadership. Therefore, their way shall uh, be to them like slippery ways. God says, I'm going to judge them. In the darkness they shall be driven on and fall in them, for I will uh, bring disaster on them the year of their punishment, says the Lord. So the Lord says, I'm going to personally judge them for what they've done here to my people and to my reputation. And I have seen folly in the prophets in Samaria, and now he uh, prophesies against the religious leaders in the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria. I've seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by, all, by Baal and caused my people Israel uh, to err. And, and so, uh, and ultimately, they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians as a result of that. And then he speaks to Judah now in the current, in the situation Jeremiah is prophesying in. Also, I have seen a horrible thing in the uh, prophet, uh, prophets of Jerusalem. Now, if I ever have my quiet time in the morning, I'm not saying God couldn't do it. Or God sends me a letter. Don't you send me a letter. I want it from God. But if God were to speak to me and I was to begin my prayer time with the Lord and he were to say, I have uh, discovered something horrible about your life. I mean, this is something that would, you know, naturally gain your attention. And he speaks about the horrible thing that he's seen in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and they walk in lies. They just began to... Uh, engage in adultery. They began to engage in dishonesty just like everybody else did. Even though here they are, they're the priest, they're the prophet. God set the whole system up in a way that they would never get rich by it, but they'd always have a roof over their head and food on the table for themselves and their families. God is sustaining them in this way, and yet uh, instead of uh, honoring Him, uh, this is what they gave themselves to. And not only was their own personal lives marked by sin, but then almost worse is they also strengthened the hands of evildoers. And so they were people that were doing evil and they ought to have been like Jeremiah denouncing them for their sin and calling on them uh, to repent. Uh, They were telling people that were doing evil, don't worry about it. God is a God of love. He doesn't really care about this kind of thing and uh, you're going to be okay. Thus saith the Lord, peace and prosperity will be on your house and so forth all of this kind of positive thing while they're engaged in, uh, in, the, in, uh, in wrongdoing instead of, you know, again, rebuking them and warning them. And then the, he declares further, so that no one turns back from his wickedness. If you're going to... Is a, if one of the things that's kind of a trump card is, is if people can get a religious leader or a pastor 
to kind of sign on to whatever they're doing. That's like, all right, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, that must be okay. And so it eases a person's conscience rather than convicting them. And so because of the influence of these religious leaders, no one was turning away from their wickedness. Uh, why would they turn away from their wickedness? Even the religious leaders in Judah were not denouncing it and calling people uh, back to holiness. And so this is the consequence. It didn't just affect the lives of the religious leaders. It affected the lives of the people who were influenced uh, by them. And that's always the thing about a leader is that uh, when they are good and they walk with God, their influence is important and it's wonderful. But when they go sideways and, and, and apostasy like they're doing here, uh, then uh, they, they, they do an awful lot of damage, a disproportionate amount of damage than uh, maybe someone with a gift of helps or so forth or mercy in the body of Christ. God declared concerning them, all of them are like Sodom to me and her inhabitants are like uh, Gomorrah. And so uh, the, the, Jerusalem and Ju, uh, Judah had become uh, so full of sin, uh, they've become so evil. When, when God talks about something in the Old Testament being uh, like Sodom and Gomorrah to him, uh, the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah is kind of an image of kind of excessive corruption that has uh, been introduced into the situation and, and meriting uh, the judgment of God. And so the Lord goes on and says, verse 15, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood. I don't know the last time you've had any wormwood, but it doesn't taste any good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make your life bitter and make them drink the water of gall. These are very bitter uh, beverages. Uh, for, the, uh, for from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all of the land. Leaders should be an influence for righteousness, an influence for God, not an influence for the common or the culture or the introduction of it or representing uh, that. And so the Lord warns that he's going to judge them for that as a result. Uh, chapter uh, verse uh, 16, Jeremiah then calls on the people to refuse uh, tell them to, to stop listening to these religious leaders. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you uh, worthless. So people were being not made better by the gifting and the influence of the, of the Jewish religious leaders. They were being made worse by coming into contact uh, with these uh, with these. Uh, uh, Jewish religious leaders. And so he warns them uh, that the leaders are responsible, but he warns them that, uh, that they are, they're responsible for who they follow or they don't follow. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. God warns them, they say they're talking for me, thus saith the Lord, but I am not filling their mouth. I, uh, they are not uh, speaking uh, for me. All of their messages are coming out of their own imaginations, out of the protecting of the, the lusts of their own flesh. I think it's very important to understand and to realize uh, that uh, there's always something wrong. And, and I, I encourage you uh, for the remainder of my life and my ministry to keep me 
to this test myself. I'm, not, I'm talking about myself as well in all of this. There's always something wrong in the heart of the leader who lowers the standard of God's Word in order to lessen the obvious demands of Scripture upon our lives. It means that there is some sin that has become precious to me, some sin that I want to uh, protect uh, and that's gotten a grip upon my life. And sometimes that sin can be, you know, the obvious sex, drug, and rock and roll kind of sins that happen, but it can be a desire for popularity or the opinions of people or to hold on to power or to get money or these kind of things. There's always something wrong when someone massages the Scriptures to uh, make them, endeavor to make them uh, say, uh, take away the edge of what they're obviously saying and, and demanding of us as God's people. And this kind of thing goes on all of the time. This is happening everywhere, related to marriage, related to sexual sin, related to virtually everything within our culture. There is this, uh, this kind of war, obviously, against, against Christianity because it, there's two kingdoms in the world. There's the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of darkness, and then there's the kingdom of God. There's, there's God's kingdom and everything else. So this is the battle between the two, the truth of God's word and then the lies of the devil and so forth. And, and so there's always this pressure uh, to say, well, we're going to become marginalized as Christians. We're going to become marginalized as a church and the community that we're in if we hold this stand on this issue or this issue or this issue. And there's that pressure then uh, to cave. And there's something wrong with me, my relationship with the Lord, uh, something if, if I, I or we cave in, in that regard. And so this replacing of God's Word with uh, our own opinions or our own ideas or, again, massaging uh, the demand out of it by saying, well, you know, really here and it's cultural and all of this kind of thing to try and um, make ourselves, please like me, please like me. I'm a Christian, please like me. I would have never become a Christian if somebody came to me and spoke to me that way. They were different people. They were strong people. They believed what they believed, and what they believed was right, and they were willing to wait until the Holy Spirit got through to me and uh, reproved me for being a dummy while I'm thinking I'm so wise and then being happy to run to God once that light went on for me. And uh, so nobody, w- it was a different age, you know, 35 years ago in, in some respects. But this whole idea, we just want everybody to love us even at the expense of, of being faithful to our calling and, and, uh, and faithful to representing God's word properly. God says, verse 17, they continually say to those who despise me. And there are people, again, among God's people who despised God and they're living wicked lives, rebellious lives, idolatrous lives. And they were telling these people, instead of repent and, and turn to God, you shall have peace. Everything's going to be okay with you. Don't sweat that Old Testament. Moses, old school, square. All right. <laughs> this is a hip new age. We're, we understand. We're not, this is a, a new time in history. We don't have to think about, you know, things in that way, you know, that old morality and, and so forth. And so they were comforting people. 
You shall have peace. And then declaring to everyone uh, who walks according to the dictates of his own heart. They're just following, following their own flesh. No evil shall come uh, upon you. So they just uh, encouraged them. They comforted people in their sin. And uh, again, never trust anyone that makes uh, people comfortable in their sin rather than calling them to repent. You know, I may not like it if somebody rebukes me for sin and calls me to repent, but way down deep inside, I will respect it, and it will have influence on me. The other thing, that's not going to have any... Uh, I know those people are bogus. I know... It's funny, isn't it, what Christians there, they know what we should be. Uh, and I mean, they're just, just like crazy sometimes. I did the same thing before I was a Christian. And, you know, you look at them and you see every flaw in every Christian's life and you don't realize that God's the only, you know, Jesus is the only true Christian in the sense that he represented it and lived it properly. The rest of us are trying to uh, by the Holy Spirit as we're making our way to heaven and so forth. But uh, people know uh, people know when, when we're being bogus about what Christianity is, the demands of the Scripture, and we start to, uh, you know, give them this kind of a, uh, lowering the standard, and they know, uh, hey, I know what you should be, what you should be saying, where you should be making a stand, and, and you're not uh, doing it. And so this is, what, uh, this is what they were doing. And so, for who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and has perceived and heard His word who has marked his word uh, and uh, heard it. So Jeremiah here, he proclaims the divine origin of his message. He was nothing like uh, these other people, and the Lord was uh, basically giving kudos to Jeremiah here uh, in the midst of the prophecy. Jeremiah is the one that's speaking for me, not all of these other people, though he's outnumbered 5,000 to 1. And then the Lord declared, Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind, and it shall fall violently on the head of the wicked, and the anger of the Lord shall not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter day you will understand it perfectly. And so God speaks of this uh, judgment that he's going to uh, bring uh, uh, upon uh, upon uh, these these false prophets. Uh, so here they are. They're saying judgment isn't going to come. Sin is okay. Everything's all right. And, and uh, Jeremiah describes here that no, the judgment of God is rushing forward no matter how much these false prophets and priests are saying that it's not going to come. And that's the problem too is that when, when uh, uh, spiritual leaders uh, comfort people in their sin. There's no judgment here. It's not going to be a problem. We just need to love all everyone. But of course, love them under our definition of love rather than God's definition of love, which is the true definition of love. And true and true love always does what is best for the other person. And sometimes that's not the easiest thing. Sometimes it's the hardest thing, but it's the loving thing to do. And, and so there, uh, Jeremiah just lets them know, the Lord does through Jeremiah, that uh, you listen into all of this stuff, judgment isn't going to come or anything, but that judgment is coming a hundred miles an hour toward you, no matter what these people uh, are uh, saying. And so steer clear of their influence, don't believe them. Now, when he talks about the latter days at the end of verse 20, he's not talking about the end of the age. When we think of Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the kingdom 
kingdom age and, and so forth. Um, it is with the rapture and the second coming and all, uh, but it talks to the end of this season of their history involving uh, Babylon. When all of this happened, they ended up invaded uh, by Babylon. Then they would realize that all of these false teachers were uh, teaching false things. But by then it's too late. And that's why the Bible teaches uh, us as Christians, not just to leaders, but to each of us as Christians, test all things and hold fast to that which is good. We are, the leaders will be responsible before God. And as James said in James chapter 3, chapter 1, we will face a sterner judgment than anyone else. It's a, it's a frightful thing to claim to represent God. It's a frightful thing to do what I'm doing here uh, tonight. Uh, but we're all responsible for who we follow, who we listen to, because we all have the Bible to test what they're teaching uh, by. So there's a personal responsibility uh, for it. Verse 21, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. Uh, so here they are. They're either self-appointed or they're appointed by uh, men, but not by God. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had uh, stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned them from their evil ways and from, uh, their, uh, and, and from the evil of their doings. And so uh, God declared if they had been faithful to his calling, they would have called people to uh, repent. And so again, uh, the, the sobriety of saying, claiming to speak for God or to teach His Word and the importance of teaching it accurately and then while not being perfect but uh, uh, aiming for a obedient life as it's represented in the Word of God, the importance of that uh, in leaders. I remember one time, it's been a few years ago now, and it was in my... Um, uh, early 30s at the time, but I, uh, I met my dad, my biological dad. I only met him one time in my life, and my twin brother and I, uh, we drove down from uh, 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 Central California uh, down to San Diego to meet him there. He came up from Mexico City. He had moved to Mexico City before we were uh, born. And uh, so had some letters and some pictures and some different things and all, but I uh, had never met him. And Gabe and I were so excited when, uh, when we finally got to meet him. And we were new Christians, excited about the Lord. We both still are. And we couldn't wait to uh, share the gospel of salvation with, uh, with our Father. The only opportunity we'd ever had. We had no sense that we'd have another opportunity to do that. And we did so. And and he listened very, very respectfully to us uh, as, as we shared with him. And then he dismissed all of it by saying, I get drunk with the priests. I can't take it seriously. I get drunk with the priests. And with that, he wiped off the marker board. In excuse, out of doubt, without a doubt. I mean, he's responsible. He had a Bible that he could have gotten just like anybody else had a Bible and all but the point is, is that no spiritual leader should willingly provide people with a reason 
for rejecting God and rejecting His truth because of a failure to be faithful to the calling and to live up to uh, the standard that the Scriptures demand uh, of a leader. And then God declares, verse 23, uh, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? This is an interesting kind of phrase that he uses here when he said they were evidently emphasizing the fact that God was a God at hand. Uh, In other words, emphasizing intimacy with God. Nothing wrong with that. Love with God, uh, personal relationship with God, that he is closer than a brother and so forth. This was what they were emphasizing. Uh, But what they were de-emphasizing was the second part, and not a God afar off. So you have what's known as the uh, eminence of God, the fact that God is present, He is near to us. That's an important part of our relationship with God and our understanding of God. But then there's what is known as the transcendence of God, that He is bigger than right around me. He is bigger than this room. He is bigger than the universe, bigger than the earth, bigger than the creation. And the realization that, yes, and and it takes both of those those things uh, to make a healthy saint where, yes, I know he loves me. I know he's close to me. I know he's with me and I know he's for me, but I know he fills all of the heavens and the earth. I know he spoke all of it into existence. Yes, he is my friend, but he is not only a friend. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. He is the Lord of hosts. And they were de-emphasizing that whole side of God that was in, is intended in the Scriptures to produce a fear of God, a respect for God that is necessary in our lives as well. I mentioned it every so often, but in my relationship with the Lord, and I think you're probably the same place, I love Him. I love His intimacy. I don't doubt His love for me. I love that part of the relationship, but I fear Him. I fear Him. I fear uh, forcing Him to choose between any kind of willful nonsense in my life and His Word because I know that He's not just a a good buddy or the Pillsbury Doughboy or whatever we want to make Him into in our minds, this kind of harmless little God that we can control and contain and there's nothing to be afraid of here, just keep on moving, nothing to see. But He isn't that. He isn't what we make Him into as people. He is God Almighty. And when the Apostle John who in the Gospels, when he was eating there with the disciples and so forth, and when he, he at the triclinium where they were having the dinner, he was seated in a place immediately in front of Jesus. And for him, as, they, as they're kind of laying out the way that they did under that culture, to eat on one elbow and so forth, Jesus is here. And for him to speak to Jesus, he had to turn so that his head was on Jesus' uh, chest. And that's, and and John had that kind of a relationship with God. And yet when you get into the revelation and he is taken up into heaven, either actually or by vision, he becomes the scarecrow and the wizard of Oz. He sees Jesus in his glory and he just falls down in a heap. And Jesus then reassures him 
of His love, of who He is, and so forth. And it takes both of those things within our lives. And that's another important thing related to uh, those that are ministering the Word and so forth, all of us. is, And it's a challenge. You should pray for all of us. I know that you do, uh, to have that balance where both of those things are being established within our lives because they're not contrary to one another, but they're complementary and they keep us healthy and safe in our uh, understanding of God. God said, can anyone hide himself in secret places so that I do not see him, says the Lord? Uh, Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Uh, And this is a rebuke of the idea of secret sin. There is no secret sin. When God is omnipresent, Everywhere all at once, there's nothing that happens that he doesn't see. God was seeing everything that was going on, not only in the sins in Judah, but also in the ministry of these uh, false prophets and priests. I have heard the prophets uh, have said, uh, what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name. I have dreamed, I have dreamed, uh, they said. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart who try to make people, uh, who try to, excuse me, make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbors as their fathers forgot my name uh, for uh, Baal. And so at this particular time, they had exalted their dreams that they were having and their prophecies uh, above the Word of God. And God was watching all of it. He was listening uh, to uh, all of it. And, uh, and, and, and He rebukes them for exalting those dreams uh, above His, above his uh, Word. And he talks about here the making people forget God and forget his word uh, through uh, offering them false prophecies, dreams, inventions of their own heart. Uh, dreams were a standard means of revelation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There can be spiritual dreams. You've got to be discerning about those because it can be just some good or bad Chinese food uh, the night before. But uh, dreams is a means by which God uh, communicates and and for receiving divine revelation. But you always test dreams and the prophecies or interpretations that come out of them uh, by the Word of God, not uh, the other way around. So they were exalting their dreams above uh, what the Word of God said. Their dreams were advocating things that were uh, forbidden by uh, the Word of God. So the importance, as Paul wrote to, to the church of Thessalonica, test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Uh, be a Berean. The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they received the Word of God with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures to see whether these things were uh, so. How frustrating uh, would it be to be God? It would be frustrating for any of us. Imagine you have somebody going around town or around wherever, and they were claiming and telling everyone that they had had a conversation with you that they had never had or that they knew you well and they didn't know you at all. 
And here they are going out and say, yes, you know, Damien said this and Damien said that. And I know I saw him one time and he did this. And this is what he always does in this situation. And I didn't know him and he didn't know me. None of us likes to be represented in that kind of a way. But when it happens in our lives, there's, it's not the end of the world. It just hurts our reputation. We don't like it and so forth. But when people are claiming to represent God and the stakes are eternal, then it becomes a, a big issue. So they were claiming these dreams were from God. This is what God has said. And God says, I never said any of it. I'm, I'm not behind any of these, uh, these prophecies uh, at all. And so then he speaks of, of what is superior to dreams or superior to prophecies even. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. He who has my word, the Bible, this is the surest revelation uh, that we have. It's peerless. It's a, uh, perfect. He who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. Uh, the, the, the dreams and revelation are always to be tested by the word, never the other way around. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? And he talks about these false dreams that they were having. It was chaff compared uh, to the wheat. If you went to a, a place where they were winnowing wheat and, and they threshed it, took the outer chaff off of the, the grain and there's the wheat and then they separate it and the wheat blows off. If you saw someone come into that a particular scene and they brought a big bag and they're putting all of the chaff into their bag and stuffing it into their mouth, you would think they were crazy. No one would eat chaff when wheat is available. And yet that's what they were doing. The problem with chaff is you can't live off of it. You can't get nourished off of it. And no Christian not in, or, or child of God in any covenant uh, can live off of dreams or spiritual gifts, even if they're authentic. Uh, the Word of God is unique, and, I, and I'm all for uh, all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit for today. I'm not putting them down, but nothing approaches the Word of God uh, in terms of uh, what it accomplishes within our lives, how it feeds us and sustains us. What is the chaff to the wheat, uh, says the Lord? There's no comparison uh, between the Word of God and these other things. Uh, Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? God said, my word, it refines, it burns, and, uh, and, and, it, and it produces holiness within our lives. And then it's like a hammer that breaks the rocks uh, in pieces. It takes in anything that's uh, false or anything that isn't true. It, it crushes it uh, like a rock. And that's what Jeremiah's uh, prophecies uh, were, uh, were doing. There is so much false prophecy going on today and so much religion that's been born out of false prophets that claim to be Christian. It, uh, you, uh, you have um, uh, Jehovah Witnesses. Com- it's uh, completely uh, false and it is, uh, and it is uh, a, uh, the product of a false, uh, a false prophet. Uh, Mormonism is the exact same thing. And so these things aren't things that are just thousands of years ago and we don't have to deal with them today. Uh, Islam faces horribly. It, just fa- it fails the test uh, of the Scriptures. Islam comes on the scene 600 A.D. It claims to have an Old Testament and a New Testament foundation, and yet what it teaches is contrary to the Old Testament and the New Testament. You always test the latest 
uh, so-called revelation from God by the earlier revelation, the, the, uh, the verified revelation. So when Islam comes on the scene and then declares itself to be an improvement upon uh, Judaism and Christianity, the Old and the New Testament, and then fails the test of what the foundation it's trying uh, to build on, you can't have it both ways. And so this kind of stuff is going on all the time, being believed all the time. And there's, again, the consequences are serious, the deception that occurs as a result. And therefore, behold, I am just about to finish this sermon. Uh, That's not in the passage, but I am. Wanted to give you hope. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophet, says the Lord, uh, who steals my words, everyone from his neighbor. How do we steal uh, the Word of God from people's uh, hearts and from their neighbor by, again, explaining away the clear demands of Scripture. That is to steal the Word of God out of their hearts. Also, to replace the Word of God in terms of a church and its part in our discipleship as Christians with anything else, even if it gets replaced by dreams or visions or spiritual gifts. Uh, Sometimes I I remember years ago when uh, there were some things that were going on related to the spiritual gifts. Again, I'm all for spiritual gifts. God give us more spiritual gifts and stir them up, but they need to be uh, real and they they need to be right. And uh, and I'm thankful for that heritage in in all of that. Uh, But uh, sometimes people would get excited in a service and there'd be the worship going on and then it would head into all of these gifts of the Holy Spirit and people would walk away and say, that was the greatest meeting ever. I mean, it was God so moved that we never even got into the Bible. Uh, That's getting things uh, backwards, especially if it's not an individual service, but that begins to characterize the church where these things become more important than the teaching of the Word of God, it's, it's always, uh, uh, it, it always res- will result in a spiritual descent uh, for, that, um, for that church. Behold, I am against, uh, verse 32, those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies, by their recklessness. I did not send them or command them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. And so when these people or the prophet or the priest ask you, saying, what is the oracle of the Lord or what's the word of the Lord? What is the burden of the Lord? As the old King James may come and say to, to Jeremiah, what's God saying? What's the word of the Lord? What's the word of the Lord? They had the Bible to know the word of the Lord, but they, did, they didn't want, they didn't like what the Bible said, so they wanted some new prophecy. What is the oracle of the Lord? And then Jeremiah was instructed to say, what oracle? And tell them uh, the oracle is what God is saying in his word, I will even forsake you, says the Lord. And and so again, in this uh, situation here, I am heading toward the end, by the way, to give some of you uh, hope as you're on your last, uh, you know, cup of coffee uh, before coming to church and the vapors of it. Uh, but uh, when uh, the... I remember listening to a story a long time ago, a teaching by Arthur Blessed. You might, some of you might remember him. He was the one that carried that cross all around the world and so forth. And very much in the Pentecostal uh, portion of the body of Christ. And I love Pentecostals. I don't have any problem with that. 
hyper-Pentecostalism that gets unbiblical, that's another story. Uh, but he spoke in his message and he said, I go all around the world. He said, I come back to the United States and then they just come to me one after the other. And he says, you know, Arthur, what's, what's the word of the Lord? What's the Lord saying? What's the Lord saying? What's the word of the Lord, Arthur? And Arthur said, he said, finally, I just got sick of it. And he said, now I respond. Here's the word of the Lord. Read your Bible and pray. And uh, again, nothing wrong with spiritual gifts, but when that becomes the Bible, you know, I, I'm not, I don't have a relationship with the Bible that it is living enough for me on a daily basis, but I've got to get some word from God, from someone else to get through whatever I'm in, then something's gotten flipped within our lives. And so, and as for the prophet and the priest and the people who say, the oracle of the Lord, I will punish that man and his house, and thus every one of you shall say to his neighbor and every one to his brother, what has the Lord answered and what has the Lord spoken? And the oracle of the Lord, this whole idea, of, this is the idea of saying, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, this is our vernacular today, this whole speaking for God uh, in this way, the oracle of the Lord, you shall mention no more, for every man's word will be be his oracle, for you have perverted the words of the living God, uh, the Lord, uh, the Lord of hosts, our God. And so again, he's speaking about the fear of God. You have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of an angelic army, our uh, God. And thus you shall say to the prophet, what has the Lord answered you and what has the Lord speaking, spoken? But since you say the oracle of the Lord Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you say this word, the oracle of the Lord, thus saith the Lord, rather, you know, so to speak, and I have not sent you, saying, do not say the oracle of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you and forsake you and the city that I gave you and your fathers and will cast you out of my presence, and I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame uh, which shall not be forgotten. So let's stand together. Very, very sobering passage. It's an important one, not only for leaders within the body of Christ, but it's important for each of us to know how important it is to, yes, use uh, leaders within the body of Christ as they will help us grow in our relationship uh, with the Lord, uh, but also to be testing them as we would anything else by uh, by the Word of God, and, uh, and that keeps all of us healthy, both leaders and non-leaders in the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for this passage. It's very strong uh, medicine, and you know that it's important for us to hear these things. Everything is in play. You see it in the United States of America today spiritually. So much pressure to tell people what they want to hear, so much pressure to comfort people in their rebellion and their sins and their idolatry, so much pressure to uh, move away and explain away the clear demands of your Scripture for repentance and obedience. All of these things are upon us, and not just as leaders, Lord, but upon us individually as Christians, within our marriages and within our homes and every place else that you've put us. And we pray that you would use this passage of Scripture 
to produce a fresh fear and reverence for you in your calling upon our lives and to stand for you knowing that none of these other things are going to last. They're all going to fall by the wayside and disappoint, but that heaven and earth is going to pass away, but your word will never pass away. Keep us close to you, your word, obedience in our lives, Lord, and make us an influence for those very same things and the lives of those that we come into contact with, we pray. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.